Hi, welcome to Five Days with Doug. I'm Doug Perkins. This week's podcast with Ellen McSweeney is really, really great. Her and I hung out in her apartment for a couple of hours the other day and just kind of let loose with many different topics and had a really great and ranging conversation that I think you'll enjoy. Ellen is a positive force in the world. She, as I said, does many things. She is a restless artist and she wears her restless nature on her sleeve. As many of you who are listening to this now probably know from reading her many writings or blog posts or the work she does with Artists Huddle, she is constantly thinking about how she relates to the world and how she relates to music. And it's fun for me to know her for that reason. I always enjoy talking to her. This conversation is no exception. She took her assignment to make a list of what she did in the last five days. Very seriously, I arrived to a huge whiteboard full of thoughts, many of which um, were not just what she did that week, but were sort of positive things that happened that week, good intentions for her week, um, and reasons to feel good about her week. So I, I was I was so impressed at even the way she was viewing her week positively. Uh, she also taught me that I only interviewed cat people so far. Uh, her cat makes an appearance in this episode as well. I guess I'm, I am is also a cat person. I grew up with a dog and a cat, but I gravitated to my cat BJ a lot more. Um, so I don't know what that says. Maybe we'll figure this out in future episodes, but um, I'm learning that I am a cat person that associates with other cat people. Uh, just something to note. Anyhow, before we start the podcast, uh, as always, if you like it, subscribe on iTunes, uh, rate it, write a review. I'm, I'm needing some of those and would appreciate it. And um, also, you should run to Ellen McSweeney's Bandcamp page and listen to her new record, uh, her solo record, and buy it. It is so great. I have been listening to it nonstop this week, and you should too. Okay, without further ado... Here is Ellen McSweeney. Brother, since I've known you, you've been mostly on the road. But now I wonder what that's doing to your mind. I know you weren't expecting to get my letter at your door. But now the road has me and I guess I'm doing fine. But tell me, how do you take the groundlessness? Don't you skin and when your heart tries to tell you something are you taking it this is great to check out your gear it's portable yeah this is as portable as it gets yeah how is your Zoom. how's your podcast i just use i just recorded my third episode so now you're gonna leapfrog me <laughs> but now you have to eat, you have to eat the mic though okay you can't we, we're not studio mics okay here we go so mine same. is just i just i have like a you know, USB mic that I plug in and it has different modes. So it has kind of a bi-directional mode, which sort of gives you the feeling of two channels. But yeah, it's like, I forget how much it was. It wasn't that much. So you just, so on your podcast, you just, I just close. park it. Exactly. We just sit close. I just like park it between us. It sounds fine. I know. I'm not like a, so not a sound person. Yeah, I think. So if it sounds like pretty good to me, I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> Yeah, I listened a little bit, but I haven't, um, I haven't, uh, I haven't gotten critical of yours, of your sound. <laughs> I have to listen. Yeah, I just figured this is like, 
we're holding we're holding the SM58 right now. Yeah. The workhorse. Yeah, I figure I can take it. I can take it anywhere I want. Yeah. And like a friend of mine works for sure cuz you know they're from here. Oh, they're no over, I didn't. I think they're over in <clears throat> Niles, I think. Oh wow, I had no clue. That's yeah. totally awesome. But they were built they started out um making things for the military. So they they torture these. They're military grade microphones. Well, my brother uh, is a helicopter pilot in the army. Uh, he j- actually just got into the special forces, and the helicopter that he flies is like—I forget how much it is. It's a thirteen million dollar machine. It might even might be three hundred. Yeah, you have no idea. You just know <laughs> it's a big no number. Idea. It's a big number. It's machine. a really big number. And when I saw like my younger brother, like he gave me a tour of the Apache, which is what he flies, and I was just like. They let you have this. <laughs> so, yeah, the military equipment thing now has like more resonance for me because you show. Yeah. I mean, it has to be plus the second season of Serial. You, oh, OK. I don't know if you've been listening, but I it's, it's about the war in Afghanistan, basically. Uh-huh. And so you come to understand like you think a lot about like the trucks and whether they can survive like an IED explosion or not. And that that was like an innovation to develop like a truck that maybe could Right. survive having a bomb go off under it right somebody spent a lot of time thinking about that so and i'm happy because you know my brother is over there totally. or he was over there he's not there anymore but anyway he's yeah. usually in the air but i had no idea that sure used to make military stuff yeah i mean i should i don't know if they still do but i just remember he was like when i was asking him about he's like oh yeah we have like yeah. there's like a because that was kind of the um i guess when they started making these mics that was like the the standard was like a higher standard it's not like yeah for the dorkiness of you know like <laughs> some studio mics if you breathe on them wrong they will they will wither right these these they they built they built to last and yeah just kind of kept it that way yeah yeah and that's oh great. that's cool that's awesome well microphones are kind of important for the military too in terms of like communication communication is right. important and this is a way to do that right well yeah it's indestructible <laughs> as Ellen taps on her microphone. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for talking to me. It is my pleasure. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've uh, been mentally noting things I want to talk to you about for days. Well, that's great. Yeah. So I, what's interesting about this, I'm, I'm staring at a, at a whiteboard full of, of thoughts. So Ellen came to play today, which is exciting. The first time I, you know, when I, th- I originally thought about doing this, I guess like a year ago almost and had interviewed some people and got completely derailed. But the first person I did this with was Tim Feeney, who appeared briefly on the, I guess on my second podcast, but I did a, I did a solo one with him and I gave him this assignment and he and I are very different. Um, our Myers-Briggs are very different. So it, what was fun about it and what actually gave me hope and trying to have a premise to give people homework before they meet with me is that he was just so put off at the idea that anyone would ever make a list of what they did in their life like this, that it, it just became, <laughs> it became a fun conversation about why do you think this way? Yeah. You dumb, dumb. And I, <laughs> and I kind of thought like, Oh, well this is interesting. And then I realized that, and I realized the therapy aspect of all of this, that I'm searching for something that he was not searching for. <laughs> yeah. But it was fine. And I think that's great. So I look forward to many different people's, um, reactions to yeah this. it's not a way that everyone thinks it's true um 
because you have a whiteboard in your in your office. This is a this is a studio. It's a multi-purpose room. Dining room. <laughs> studio slash dining room. But there's a big whiteboard on the wall. And you when I walked in, one of the first things you said was how much you like your whiteboard. And I too have a whiteboard. I have a big one straight in front of my desk that I I, I also love. It helps me. It helps me. Yeah. And the funny thing is that I mean, I don't know how much I should be, you know, keeping track of. I actually sometimes will just take a picture like before I did this just this morning. It's just a brain dump. I mean, it's not much of a plan. It's it's sort of like a sand drawing or something. You know, you just shake it and it's gone. But it helped you get your head screwed on straight at the time. It's funny how much of my own like self-organizational writing I never look at again. Right. So it clearly wasn't really for organization or for planning. It was just kind of for like situating myself. So I took a picture of what I had on the board before you got here, which actually might be something I want to look at again because I was doing repertoire research uh-huh. for pieces I wanted to play. And I had found a couple things. So I took a picture and then I just erased it. Right. Yeah. And this this whiteboard thing kind of helped me review my past five days and think about what I want to talk about with you. And so, yeah. Yeah, I think I use mine... Sometimes it's good to just the act of, um, well, one, I do so many different things that like I have like six or seven columns now. Yeah. So I can at least, if I'm at a loss and I feel like I haven't been thinking about something, I can look up and say, how is that part of my life doing? I can erase that, erase that. I should, and then, you know, I should put some other things down. And then once it's in paper, then some, some part of my morning will be coffee and staring and I'll. It will remind me when I need it or just will make it real. It will yeah. go from mental dreams into reality because I wrote it on something. And I should say like my whiteboard is much smaller than I wish it was. And someday I will have a giant wall <laughs> made only of whiteboard and then I'll have to erase less. I mean, let's face it. The, the real reason I erase is because there's no room. Right. <laughs> If I had infinite whiteboard space, I, I would probably love to leave my repertoire list up and, and revisit it. But it's, you know, we work with limited uh, limited space in an urban urban center. Right. <laughs> and um, limited money to buy giant whiteboards, which are surprisingly yeah, not cheap. Yeah, more than you think. <laughs> I remember taking it. Mine is, no, mine's similar to yours. It might be, I might have a couple inches on you. Yeah. But I remember taking a deep breath the day I invested in it yeah yeah but it's it's a no-brainer i mean it's so nice the feeling of the you know the dry erase on the my problem is that the 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 markers are also kind of expensive and again it's like buying socks for me where (laughs) you know like socks aren't that much money so we could all walk around in fresh socks if at a certain level of life we are afforded a luxury i can say that i'm doing well enough in my life that i can afford socks i am yeah I'm like a sock millionaire. Like if I really wanted to freak out and buy lots of socks, I could buy lots of socks, but I don't because like the act of buying the socks feels like something. And similarly a whiteboard. Mine is like, I'm using these like super dry pens. Oh because no, no. I should don't. invest because it just, I'm always like, I know. You I gotta know. let it flow. You gotta <laughs> let it flow. I know. Well, it's, it's like one of those weird things in my life. Whiteboard pens. <laughs> I avoid. You buying. deny yourself a decent whiteboard pen. That's one of the, the ways in which you're Spartan and self-denying. It's true. I shouldn't be. I know it's stupid. <laughs> yeah. I have those categories too, so it's okay. Well, I'm, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you've been up to? Because 
I, I guess I should say that I'm excited to talk to you and I think I'm always excited. I'm excited generally about you and that I feel like, um, thank you. You have a restless mind. Uh, sometimes I have a restless mind, but I enjoy your restless mind because, mm. uh, well, you wear your restless mind on your sleeve. I think that's kind of your thing. It's one of your things. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah well it was funny because this week was as i look back on it a great week great great week um in the sense that i like had a few really important conversations with collaborators i exercised i saw two shows you know it was it was rocking you know there was a lot of good things that happened this week and to tell you the truth it sheds light on the fact that I'm doing really well and it makes me think about times I wasn't doing that well like I'm like oh I'm doing well now and I'm like let's think about last winter when I was horribly depressed and like could not get any of this stuff going so it's it felt really good to make a list and be like I've had a really good balanced five days that are like moving me where I want to go I'm so lucky you know but I'm also like, man, there was such a long time that this was not how things were. How long do you feel like you've been having good weeks? It, like, was this last week this a bad current week? stretch? Or? No, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't catch me on my first good week. Um, I would say it's the past couple of months I have felt really good and kind of started to feel like myself for the first time um, in a while. Cause I sort of had, a, I just had a lot of shit happen in my life that I had to sort through. And so I was still functioning. I was still playing. I was, I was doing stuff, but it didn't quite, it wasn't lining up. It wasn't feeling great. And uh-huh. now it's, it's feeling great. So it's a, it's really interesting because I feel like I have so much empathy for people who might be struggling with like discouragement or depression or something really hard just happened to them and they now have to slog through I don't know. It just, it kind of makes me think about everybody else. And there's people in our field who are thriving and people who are struggling at any given moment. Right. And it could be the same person a year apart. Right. So that's kind of what it made me think about. I was like, wow, I'm so glad that I'm not depressed. (laughs) You know, like whatever. Um, Yeah. So that's just, that was my, speaking of wearing my restless mind on my sleeve, there it is. Well, I was wondering, I was excited to see your um, blog post a couple of weeks ago where you were talking about your um, turning 30 freak out and getting a job and finding balance that way. Because that's, I think that, well, that was, that kind of is that defining moment for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, that was an awesome thing in the sense that I decided to write about getting a 40 hour a week day job. And I have some ideas about how I ended up in a mental place of wanting a 40 hour a week day job, which is, you know, I'm tired of being broke. I don't know where this is going. This is all way too hard. Um, So I have some understanding of that now. Like I have some understanding that I was in a pretty low place in terms of feeling like I could make performing work. And the funny thing is that the year before I applied for that day job, I performed a lot. 
I played a lot and it kind of wasn't working for me in some way. I needed to take a break. I needed to step back. And the response to my article about getting a day job was pretty profound. It was, it's the most widely read article I've had on my site so far. Um, and it's definitely something that people want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And day jobs are something that are often hidden away. Right. People don't talk about it. In a way, it makes sense that they don't talk about it. It's not something they particularly want to amplify or make a big deal out of. Um, but for me, like taking a look at my own psychology and saying, what made me go there? And then how quickly I got into the job and realized it wasn't what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Certainly to work full time there was, was not what I wanted. I mean, it happened so fast. So it was a huge learning moment for me. I think I had mine. Well, I had mine earlier and that coming out of, uh, coming out of college, I remember being full of piss and vinegar and sure that I could do things. And my dad was the one who sat me down and kind of said, so let's, he made me make my life budget. And when I realized that like my numbers were not even kind of adding up, he, it was, it was, it was wonderful and gentle the way he encouraged me into getting a job. Hmm. But then I worked full time for the Hartford symphony for, I think two years. How old were you? in my mid 20s probably 25 or something like that okay Um, and i was i had plenty to do like it was when well i had as we all had that was when so percussion was starting and i was like we were all convinced that we were the greatest we were the greatest and we had like two gigs at two libraries in the coming year you know it's like (laughs) it was like we really hadn't we had no reason to feel as great about ourselves but we we had vision and vision is sometimes all you need to feel good in the morning it's super powerful if you have that you have a lot but i was really grateful for my time at my day job i think i similarly by day two i was not having I was realizing that I was not loving this job. Well, there was aspects that I was loving. I was in, I was, I was working with, I was in the education department and work with children and having meaningful times there. But also it, what I got out of it was that it was worth, I getting up and working as hard as I can on my career was as anything, any, any hor, hor, quote, air quotes, horrible thing that I had to do any mundane task was worth it because it was for what I believed in yeah, and not because somebody down the hall needed me to, to make a report or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, people are just different. That's another thing that I was just so strongly reminded of because I have so many really smart colleagues at my day job who I think truly kind of thrive and things fall into place surrounding this, you know, this work that they do there. And um, I just felt like it is such a privilege to have what we have as players and as creators and as builders. That is a privilege. And it's also in my DNA. God damn it. Because I really thought maybe I can just settle into something that's easy and that will feel good to me. And it didn't. And I was like, God damn it. And I wrote about in the article, I was getting up at five to play my violin. I thought I didn't want to play my violin anymore. So I think if I'd had the experience of working full time in an office when I was 25 instead of when I was 30, it would have happened then. That would have been it. I mean, I think anyone who ever fantasizes about office life needs to go check it out. 
Right. Or maybe, you know, some people never will. But but if you do, it's really interesting to check out and your your delusions are quickly stripped away and you're left with what's real. And you're like, oh, OK, this is what this is. There's many people in our field that I, I wish had that experience when when they are bemoaning the problems of life that, you know, aren't aren't they're not seeing everything we do as performers as a privilege. Yeah. I'm I, I always want to say you should go. You never had, you don't know struggle yet, or you don't know, you don't know boredom. They know, yeah, they know a very particular kind of struggle, which is totally a struggle, by the way. It's very hard. And and yes, because we're in an uncertain world and we have to carry. It's been funny, this podcast, uh, when my mom listens, she gets really anxious. She's like, I had no idea your life is so uncertain. You and your friends, I could never do that. Because <laughs> all she wanted in her life was some stability. Mm. And so so some people don't like this, this thing that we have. They could not tolerate it. And that's the thing. And when I talk about like the three years before I applied for my job, my mom had gotten cancer, passed away. I ended a major relationship and my life felt so uncertain, I actually could not tolerate anymore the uncertainty right. of my career. And I needed to take a break and I needed somebody to write me checks um, for, as it turns out, a very short <laughs> amount of time. But I needed it uh-huh. um, because I could not tolerate that level of, of uncertainty. And I think maybe somebody like your mom, the way she's built, she couldn't tolerate it ever and would would quickly choose you know, quickly choose that thing that would make her feel safe. Um, yeah. And I, I realize that I value freedom more than I value stability. Right. Although I think you also, you and I shared a little bit of something in that I, when I was just being a performer, that also kind of freaks me out when I'm doing it all the time because maybe I have a little bit, I have a lot of my mother in me, but I do, <laughs> if I'm only living on, instability like not instability but you know seeing where the music takes me and I'm just performing two things happen either one to make it stable I'm playing so many notes and I'm getting behind the drums so many times that that can feel a little you can get a little raw from just like churning notes all day Mm -hmm. and I have a little bit of a feeling of um, my life is in balance when I when I have something non-performing to do yeah so uh interestingly the two 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 moments in my life were one you know when when so picked up when i was playing with so and we were just touring all the time i can remember my breakdown with that was when i was on steve reich concert number 300 and knew that that was what was coming tomorrow and the day after and there would be sweaty vans and stinky people and I, I needed more than just that. And then I freaked out and moved to the woods and just wanted to teach and feel professorly. And then that felt really even kind of dull. So I know that I, I know that for me, there's a balance of, of things. Yeah. And I, and so I'm curious for you, cause I know that you are not just playing all the time. Yeah, no, I'm not. Well, the other thing that you and I have in common is that playing not only not only is a diet of exclusively playing um, very high pressure and and stressful and kind of a grind, but it also doesn't 
allow us to make use of everything we're capable of. Right. That's the other thing. Um, you know, I have major other areas of myself that I don't feel I can use as a violinist. I think a lot of people feel this way. I actually think it's a rare person who truly feels that all of their capacities as a human being can be channeled into instrumental performance. It's probably actually too much to ask of any occupation. Um, But for me, I think I'm so glad you mentioned playing so many notes, you know, with so percussion. I've been talking to people lately about the fact that like in order to make a living exclusively playing just the sheer number of works you've got to be turning over or conversely the number of repetitions of the same work neither of which is particularly good for your like artistic health um you just have to do such a high volume and i don't think it's talked about a lot what that might do to you um and i'm now stepping off for sure the high volume, the high volume thing. And I'm trying now to build projects that only I could play. Uh-huh. You know, like I've always been like, you know, there's somebody out there who can do X better than me. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to play like a Schubert piano trio occasionally. I love that. But I'm just like really searching for like, what is that thing that pretty much only I can do? And it's probably going to take me kind of years to figure it out. I mean, I'll play while I'm figuring it out, but it's not high volume. And that's why I wrote on the board, um, confronting my FOMO, my fear of missing out. Well, I was gonna say that's the, that's the, that's the flip side of, of not going high volume is feeling irrelevant. Like totally. And I have such a hard time, even colleagues of mine who like play a lot of weddings are touring with a Broadway musical. Like I see their stuff on Facebook, huge source of FOMO, horrible. Um, because typically you don't have to see what everybody else is doing. You can, you know, before you could kind of just make your choice, live with it. You hear some news every now and then today you could literally subject yourself to a constant stream of what you did not decide to do. So that's crazy. <laughs> but I look at friends who are doing that and I'm like, why didn't I get that call? Right. Cause you don't want the call and you're not doing anything to get it, but you still feel somehow disappointed. I still somehow feel disappointed that I was not called to play X you know, gigging thing with artist ABC. Right. What the hell? I have to like choose my choice. <laughs> right. I have, um, well, two, two things about that. Mm-hmm. One, the, I, I've, I've come to avoid that FOMO in that I can sense when it's coming for me. So I will avoid, I now preemptively have learned when to avoid the internet because I feel a, I feel, I feel a FOMO opportunity coming on <laughs> <laughs> and I might suspect it. And then I'll say, you know what? It's fine. Because everything yeah. moves so quickly that I know that maybe by, maybe we'll be back to cats by Saturday and then <laughs> I can look at people's cats and babies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Certain people's posts hit a certain nerve because right. of sort of what they represent. Totally. Um, and so, yeah, that's great that you, you have developed an awareness of who sure. pushes a certain button and to know, oh, okay, that button's being pushed. And I think I'm starting to get that too. I feel this pain, you know, looking at like pictures of people at a gig. And I've, I've gone round and round this merry-go-round so many times. Should I take the orchestra audition? Do I want to work up a bunch of excerpts? No. Repeat six months later. You know, 
So the, it's, it's, it, you have to be really intentional about it. And I'm finally getting there. One time this, um, there's this guy named Tom Morris who runs the Ojai festival. And he, I mean, he's a Yoda to many people, but uh, he's, he has been a Yoda to me many times. And I remember once him, I don't know, at some point we'd had dinner or something and he asked me what I was wanting to do. And I was sort of bemoaning sort of this, this topic of like, I feel like I'm doing a million things, but I want to be doing more. And he just said, well, when you don't get something, is it, did you not get it because you tried to get it and didn't get it? Did you do something to try to get it and not? Or are you just generally feeling a feeling? Because the, the, his point was that, like you're saying, well, if, if you want to be playing those concerts, well, maybe you should be taking, you're a smart person. You should take the steps to play those concerts and maybe you will play those concerts. I know how but, to do that. I would be contacting personnel managers right. and taking lessons with the concert masters and playing for the principal second. And am I doing that? No, right. I'm not. You would not. inherently be taking steps toward the thing you're trying to get to. Right. And then if you're not doing that, then you should probably just chill out or feel either feel good about the decisions you've made to not take those steps yeah. or start taking those steps. Yeah. And it has nothing to do with the situation or person who is having that moment. Yes. And I mean, I think actually, so FOMO, yes, fear of missing out. That's definitely a part of it. Also, FOGB, fear of going broke, <laughs> right? Well, that's, so yes. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's the people that I am looking at and feeling worried about for myself are being paid a rate that was predetermined and that is maybe union scale and that is maybe pretty good. And I'm like, oh, well, that's what they pay violinists to do. And if I don't want to do that, I have to do, you know, all the back end work of building what this violinist wants to do and what actually I think people will really like once I figure it out. Um, so it's just a lot more work. It's a lot more different work, <laughs> but it does require... It re well, it re yeah, it requires a certain, a certain confidence or a certain, um, yeah. well, I saw that you're running now. Yes. Just a little bit. I, I have running in my family background. I have a group of cousins who were like all NCAA division one athletes and my mom's dad, you know, ran marathons and, um, but I've never been like the athletic type, but I do love to run. Yeah. But why, why does it make you think of running? Oh, well, I am a, I'm, I'm now a low level hack runner also. Mm -hmm. I think I probably a year ago, maybe it was a little more than a year ago. I started running with, um, when I was touring with the Blackbirds cause Nick Fotinos and Michael McAfee were in the half marathon mm. thing. And at the, at the most shallow level, I was watching the two guys in front of my marimba getting skinnier. <laughs> <laughs> and they're they're typically people who just like to drink beer and sit around and yet they were like what they're like well we're just, we're just going we have these apps on our phones and we're running and so then <laughs> i was like oh so on the road i you know i'd see them in the lobby going to the gym and so finally i started yeah. like going to the gym yeah so, so then i've started i've done one half marathon and i'm endeavoring towards my second oh wow but it occurred to me so my last two runs one of them I was on, I was away for a while and I could only run like two miles a day. I got back because my brain was just like, you, you tired fat. So you can't, you can't do it. You know, like my brain was just sending stop signals the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And then right. yesterday I went running and I ran seven miles 
Because when I started, my brain said, you got in the tank, buddy. Do it. Yeah. And then I spent I spent all seven miles like in this really positive place. Wow. Saying you can do it. Yeah. And because my brain was in a you can you can get this done. My body was no different. You know, that, that two miles did not particularly train me. Maybe I'd slept a little more, but my like my mental state wasn't such that. Oh, yeah. And that and that's why I again go back to these memories. I mean, exercise like such a, you know, linchpin of health and so hard to make time for if you're feeling like I'm not even making a bottom line here people like I'm not even you know I am in the red um it can feel like oh I can't possibly make time for exercise and then I think back to you know periods of time that I just felt confused and sad and I could not get myself to go running right it's like little by little you make these choices that kind of help you you know, have some health and some clarity and just how you make that first step is, is so interesting. You know, I guess you hit you reach a point where you're just ready. Maybe. Yeah. Tomorrow. Well, I'm certainly not running today, <laughs> <laughs> but it also, I think actually helps with my internet FOMO. Well, it just helps with life. It just like mental clarity, a little bit of running makes you like a little tired and a little it's focused. It's like so stupid. Like it's so simple. And even if you weren't running seven miles, right? Like even if you're just, you're moving your body, the blood is flowing. Right. All the things that everyone says happen when you exercise actually happen. And it took you half an hour and you're like, this is not hard, but simple. It's not the same as easy. So, um, yeah, but truly it actually kind of is easy. Things in life. Yeah. Whether it's practice or maintaining your relationship or (laughs) it's all (laughs) right. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck making the right choice every time. It's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. It's very easy. Just be completely focused on this task for a half hour. (laughs) Right. And one of the things I wrote down, I was listening to your conversation with, with Tim Monroe, who was saying, and he was saying this very positive thing, which is that he's discovered he doesn't mind feeling a little irrelevant or out of the game every once in a while. Like he was like, as it turned out, I don't know if I believe him. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, there's that. I mean, but I think what I wrote down on the board that I want to talk to you about as a topic was how little we can accomplish in this life. And I think that's such a relief if you're just, there's something about what is at stake? What is the big effing deal about, you know, me making music? What is really at stake? Why does it become so fraught? Why does it feel like life and death? Is it really? Um, if I can kind of admit to myself that I'm not going to be able to do like everything I want to do in this life, there's going to be some stuff left undone. That's a big relief. And then you can do your things. Um, I just feel like so much of what I've struggled with is just a desire to do a lot. And I don't want to accept the fact that I might be limited. Like people who get sick, people who have disabilities, people who end up having, who have children and have to slow down. Like people face the reality that they can't do everything, you know, um, if you're able-bodied and healthy, like what you're going to be able to do in a life is, is huge, you know, compared to someone who had like chronic fatigue or something. Right. Right. I mean, I just think about this. If we let ourselves say, I can really do very little. It's like a mother Teresa thing. 
we can only do like small things with great love. Like she was smart. Right. We could take that to heart too, you know? Yeah. Well, and you can, yeah. And you're one person and you're, you're in the great scheme of life. You're any of our big ideas are such modest proposals. Yeah. That, you know, it's even interesting hearing, um, like president Obama talking about finishing his term and talking about, you know, what limited scope it can feel like even when you're the president because of that, you're trying to motivate other people to go out and that really, you know, well, and that's actually kind of an interesting point that I think at best we're trying to make, we're trying to help start fires, but we really need other people. I think, and I think about that with my, my career or I guess my life generally is I'm just hoping to like help little sparks happen so that they can, flow from me into other people yeah and hopefully go places because i'm aware that you know it can't be just you i think i think that's like a big personal thing for me is like not trying to go it alone you know yeah getting help realizing that like this is a community project what we're trying to do you know trying to bring contemporary art into more people's lives and trying to just bring some beauty and some inspiration and something that's fascinating and new. I mean, those are all like such great aspirations. And I was listening to this. This made me, I wanted to talk to you about this, this episode of on being okay, amazing interview podcast with Krista Tippett with this man. I believe his name is Nathan Schneider. He wrote a book about the Occupy movement. Uh And it struck me as I was listening to him, you know, he was like, you know, that movement took fire based on sort of connections that had been laid down over a long period of time. Like someone went to an activist meeting once, you know, this friendship, this email list, this Facebook group, and then it did catch fire in a very big way. And that's what they say about movements. A movement might look like it lit up overnight, but actually it's the result of years of slow groundwork. And I started to think that way about us, like about our contemporary music community and just artists in general, that that's kind of what we're hoping for. We we build little organizations and we start concert series and these you know big community projects that you do, just kind of hoping that they will become the network for, for something very big. Um, and that's a long game. Right, for sure. Yeah, it's a long game. And I like that idea of thinking about us as a little social movement. Mm-hmm. Well, I liked that. <laughs> the the thing that's interesting for me about that, or the thing that I think about and I wish we were all better at, is then how to how to be aware of our individual insignificance and our movement's relative insignificance, and then to get everyone working positively and in a unified way. Uh, because it can, sometimes we can have there can be petty disputes among people or people who get, I mean, and I get it. Like I should say, I'm also extremely sympathetic because we're all like trying to get the same $2. Like we're all trying. There's like no, (laughs) there's no opportunities for anyone and there's no, no money for anyone. And we're all just trying to live. So at some point I, like I totally get it that we're right. But, but within that, then how can we be aware that, um, we need each other to, to lift up even thinking about me you know me talking into this microphone and I remember I emailed you once you started your podcast saying ah 
I want to do this. And then you kind of inspired me to do it. And then at some point I, I actually felt bad about for two seconds. I felt bad that I was like that you would see that as an act of aggression. Oh well, yeah. But, but, but you know, of I course, didn't at all, but I, I, I could I figured, see how you would. Yeah. I, I, like some people could see it that way, but where I was realizing that we need each other and what we need. And so, and then I think, I think Tim Monroe is going to finally start his, and that we all just need to be talking and we need to be connecting. And the more people that, you know, in just talking into microphones and same thing with the music that if we're all supporting each other and lifting each other up, that that is, that is what will ultimately maybe get us $3 to fight. over. <laughs> well, and it's funny too, because the other, I haven't done a whole lot of research about this, but I can tell this is going to become kind of a fruitful line of thinking for me. The idea of a social movement. And then funny thing was the other topic that this guy, Nathan Schneider had written about is um, God and the Catholic church. He was like an adult convert to Catholicism. And he writes a lot about spiritual communities and how they formed and monastics sort of monks he was sort of talking about how those communities of monks formed when the church had been sort of like co-opted by the state so like monastics were sort of outside the institutions trying to build their own institutions and that also sort of reminded me of us because not that all of our institutions are bad or co-opted by an evil state that's not the case (laughs) um but we're critical of them And we want to build our own network that's very much based on shared values. I mean, when I sit down with you or I sit down with Dave Remenick or I talk to Tim, um, there's something unspoken that has yet to be articulated that is very much present among us that we're like, yeah, I get it. I totally see where you're going with this. I don't know what the word is for it, but it's there. And that is a common feature in activist movements in spiritual communities it's like we don't know what this is it's formless but we we're moving towards it right you know maybe we just feel the slightest bit of progress and yeah or you just know it's like you have no choice you know if you find a collaborator or even just a friend what is the difference i don't know (laughs) um who with whom you feel that kinship and you just know somehow you're moving towards the same thing you you have no choice but to go towards that, um, however mysterious it may be. You know, it's it's a pull. You're being pulled into this work together, which is both very insignificant and very significant at the same time. Um, so you are so right that people, ha- everyone who wants to have a podcast where they talk about what they care about must. It is of great importance, you know, because we, we do spark little fires. Um, I'm surprised often how much people care and and give a crap. And I'm glad you talked about that because blah, blah, blah. And here, you know, here I was thinking, you know, no one cares about this. Right. (laughs) It's not true. Right. And the other thing that I I heard an interesting, I think this was in the book, um, So Good They Can't Ignore You. I love that book by Cal Newport. The idea that in science every once in a while, Literally three scientists at the very same time discover the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like somehow it was prime at that moment. Like this was like the moment that humans figured this out and they had all very separately arrived at the same conclusion. And this would be like a long time ago when they weren't sharing any research with each other. There are examples of this happening when something rises to the surface and that would might be something too. Like, well, I 
want to have a podcast. Well, me too. And I'm also doing that. And instead of, I mean, you do sometimes feel that pang, like, oh, did I get scooped? Someone else already thought about this. Or the other way of seeing it would be, we're onto something here. This is real. Right. So, yeah. I'm, I've been looking over your shoulder at your, um, at your whiteboard. Yes. Which is, uh, what's interesting about when you thought about your week, uh, yeah, with the kind of things that you wrote down, uh, you didn't write down when you practiced or you didn't write down when you went to work. Um, it seems like you wrote down the, that's so great. You wrote down many things that, um, Oh no, there, there you did. You did work yeah, 20 hours. Yeah, the work thing was, yeah. It was there. It is there. It is not a big part of it. <laughs> you worked 20 hours and you commuted for eight hours. Okay, that's good. Um, <laughs> but it, it also just seems like a list of f- like uh, positive things that happened. That's yeah, nice. it's true. It is. I, because, uh, you know, some people I think would write the things that, uh, or focus on the things that were the impediments. Like, yeah. And, and um, well, it's I true. I literally wrote you a list of like the headway that I made, which is great. And it's, <laughs> it's um, because in, you know, uh, Peter made a shorter list when I talked to Peter Markusak, mm. but the one thing he wanted to talk about was that his week was uh, the narrative of his week was his cat was sick and everything related to the sickness of the cat. Which is important. Yeah. And, uh, like Tim. <laughs> For sure. I, I remember Tim Feeney. It was a lot of. Uh, I think his car broke down. So it was, a, you know, like. So the whole week was cast in the light of the. Of the, the struggle of the week. Yeah. Uh, Tim Monroe uh, averted the question entirely. And just <laughs> reminded me that he won a Grammy that week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It depends. Like as I. Oh, actually interesting. <laughs> it depends what week you know, you catch someone on and that's what I was so aware of. I'm like, well, Doug caught me on a really good week. Um, had this been six months ago, the list might've been like worry for two hours a day. Um, go to office for eight hours and feel very ambivalent about it. You know, um, that easily could have been my list. So it depends on when you catch someone. Right. <laughs> when in their lives or just, you know, their car broke down that week and it was crazy. Can I ask you a question about your job? Of are course. Are you working the same job that you... Are you working a 20-hour version of your 40-hour a week job? Yes. I managed to convince my employer to let me go half time. I did that in Hartford also. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God bless them. I think I was very bad at the job. I was okay. No, I was okay. I think I... I don't hard to know. I definitely was not up in line for promotions. I'll say that. Um, are you comfortable talking about your job? What yes, you, I what, am. What yeah. Do you do? So I work um, in marketing and communications for Music of the Baroque. Okay. Which is an organ. They're an orchestra and chorus that plays eight concerts a year at the Harris Theater and up at the North Shore Center in Skokie. And this weekend we're doing the Monteverdi Vespers. So I will be behind the. Um, subscription renewal table and also listening to the Monteverdi Vespers, which is awesome. I feel so much better at my job when I'm there 20 hours a week than I did when I was, when I was there 40. And some of this stuff is of course internal to the organization. Like, do we need 40 or is it okay? I mean, me being there 20 is an experiment. Um, there were certainly 
there's certainly resistance. Like, are we losing capacity? And um, I'm coming from this perspective of like the gig economy where like, if you're not working, you don't get paid. So sort of a slow day at an office to me feels like... You're right. You're stealing money for... I'm stealing money and it's so excruciating. And also there might be something else I'd rather do. So, so to That's when me, I would turn my monitor and I would aggressively work on so work. <laughs> I was so happy to have a printer. <laughs> and like, right. And so many musicians, I'm sure, are doing that. Um, I am someone who cannot compartmentalize at all. Uh-huh. So it was really hard for me to, you know, sit at my job and say, oh, I don't even know if this is quite a full time job. And it, it might just be me. Maybe I just don't want to do it full time. Maybe that's right. why it doesn't feel like enough work. You know, if I was a real go getter, blah, blah. Um, yeah. But I think there's a lot of people out there sitting on Facebook at their employers. Totally. Uh, on their employer's dime. I did not want to do that because it is painful for me on a physical level. Um, it just feels, it feels really great. So we'll see what happens. Like it's, it's up to my employers to decide if it's working and if I'm doing what they need me to do in the amount of time I'm comfortable giving them. Right. And, you know, we'll see what happens. It's def- it's a, it's a trial for them. It's an experiment. Um, but I'm, I'm feeling really good about it. I really appreciate, um, I appreciate having that to go to when you're really busy playing and writing. You're like, Oh, I don't want to go. But then if you're kind of like, ready to just show up somewhere and be helpful. It's really nice. And are you getting, um, are you learning anything in the job? Oh yeah. I'm learning a ton. I'm learning a ton because I'm working for an organization that's 45 years old that, you know, raises $2 million each year. I forget what the split is between ticket sales and contributed income, um, that treats its musicians beautifully the musical quality is really high. I'm getting an up close look at, you know, the aging patron base that everybody talks about and how, you know, how that is or isn't like affecting yeah, music of the brook. I actually has to be an interesting. It's fascinating. Cause I am coming at it from a totally, I mean, essentially I, you know, have built a career as a performer around DIY self-starting, mm-hmm. Um, stuff in Chicago and then to to see from the inside how a really established organization works that has enough resources to do it right right is huge like I am the person who prepares the program book I spend I don't even know how many hours I spent preparing the program book for this Vespers because, you know, 2,500 people are going to look at it. Right. You don't want typos. You don't want stupid crap in there. And it takes time time. to find the typos. And I have never had that. I've never been a musician who had that kind of staff support, except like when I was at BAM with a show. Uh I was like, oh, this is what it's like to have everyone taking care of everything for you. Right. That was really nice. And I hope I get to do that more. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's really humbling to see how much time it actually takes to do something well. Yeah, I was, that's the, the biggest thing I was grateful for when I had this job in Hartford was that where my desk was kind of in between, I was kind of in the development office, but then there was 
a little bit of mar- like I was just in between a lot of offices. Yeah. So just in the day to day, what was happening past me, I was hearing the way when you're have a multi-million dollar organization, yeah. the way you develop relationships, the way you deal with patrons, the way yeah. you have to deal with the musicians, yeah. the, all of the issues at kind of that bigger level. I learned so much about one, you know, systems and how to do it right. And, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was quite a, it was so nice and it really helped going in once I, you know, trying to start my own organizations, realizing having some vision when I'm lost of what a bigger structure looks like. Yeah. So it's not like, I don't know how how we can do that. At least I could say, well, okay, this other organization I've worked with, here's how they deal with it. Yeah. And to see it not being the musicians is also really interesting to say that if you can gain enough support around an idea, people will help you. Like for whatever reason, there are hundreds of people who give who give money so that Baroque music can keep being played in Chicago. Like that's awesome. And that took a long time you know, to develop. So it's not hopeless. (laughs) It is not hopeless to have an organization that, you know, is supported by a community and has a generous board and it's something that can be achieved. So that's just great for me to see up close instead of having a scarcity mentality of we're always going to be operating on the edge. Um, you know, whatever I'm seeing an organization where that's not the case. It is stable. It is doing fine. It knows what it is doing. Um, I mean, certainly they, every classical music organization has to look into the future and be like, is this going to keep working and stay alert for that? So it's great. I'm learning a ton. Definitely. I, and from, I, I still think about, it's been interesting. I, you know, give give me the right week, and I'll think about it. I'll think about chucking it off for. Um, a, I I hesitate to call things desk jobs, but um, to move into more administration roles. When I realize, when I ask myself questions of, um, sometimes when I ask myself questions of, do I want to affect change for people at a larger systematic level, and thinking, you know, thinking about how can I do things in a bigger picture way of you know when you're when you're moving around tens of thousands of dollars or could you be at the helm of a multi-million dollar organization that's really trying to make global waves sometimes that maybe i'm a little too megalomaniacal but you know sometimes that's exciting to me to think about that but then anytime i get to talking about that all my performer friends are like but dude dude you're not going to get to goof around anymore yeah that's I mean it's just whatever it's a constant struggle it's true it is and and no I mean certainly the executive director of an organization like that has a lot of responsibility on their shoulders and ultimately it's on them to make sure that all the numbers line up and everything is okay and that is a big responsibility and that is not for everybody right I don't think I would want to be in that position um, so yeah, but what you're talking about is such an awesome like question to be constantly asking yourself is where can you have the most impact and also w- that will make you happy. 
Right. You know, like the funny thing about my website, Artists Huddle, and what I'm sort of testing out is, you know, I'm going to have, I have a few podcast episodes, but I've also been writing. And clearly the writing is much more impactful. Like that's just like demonstrable. Like people email me, people share the article, they write to me for advice afterwards. Like it is reaching them. So I'm like, okay. Oh, that's great. This is having impact. Like if I sort of want the most bang for my buck. Well, you're also a good writer. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And you've been at it a while. I mean, I think I I came to know you through your writing. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people did, which is really funny. Um, And I, that's the other thing about this is I have just been swimming upstream for such a long time being like, well, I don't want people to know me for my writing. I want them to know me as a, you know, a fiddle player or a singer or a creative person. Not that writers aren't creative people. And I think I threw away a lot of those opportunities because I didn't want people to like me for what they liked me for, you know, as if I have any control over that. I don't get to, I don't really get to pick what aspect of my work has the most impact. Um, So now I'm like in this place of trying to embrace the impact that I can have. I'm like, if I helped 2000 people think about women composers, that's great. Why would I feel sheepish about that again? You know, just embracing where I can have an impact. Well, and it's all tied tied in. I mean, maybe it's harder for you to see, but of course, if you, if you weren't, if you weren't playing and being creative, you would have nothing to write about. (laughs) Again, it's that thing that you're wearing your life on your sleeve yeah, and it kind of like comes out through the, comes out through the Right. And, and in fact, the reason that I started writing, that I wrote this article about women composers and particularly the idea that you have to be a genius to compose which is kind of a prevalent idea in many ways. You have to be some kind of special head case, um, which is changing. People's idea about that is changing. But the reason I, I thought about that is because I composed some stuff. You know, so if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been able to see so clearly, oh, I thought this was some kind of rarefied thing that I, for, for whatever reason, didn't have access to. I'm still totally in my own head about that. I've been for years. Uh, and it's, it's really sad, actually. Mm. Um, I remember going back and it, I mean, we're not alone. Like, yeah, you know, so now writes a lot of its own stuff, but I was around when they were doing the first, like Jason started writing pieces for the first time. And we, it was like, Oh my God, why would we, you didn't, Scary. You, didn't you have no degrees in this thing. You know, oh. and it's like, no, it was really good and communicates. And I've since, I think I used to not want to improvise either. Yeah. And then I've luckily taught at this, this um, school in New Hampshire for a while, Franklin Pierce, where you could you could get um, like freelancer mentality. No one could read music if you if you did a percussion ensemble for people who didn't read music, you would get enough people to sign up for the class, and you would make that nice bit of money. So I was like, okay, this is great, and it turned into just an improv ensemble. Cool. And then I kind of realized at the end of it, oh, I, I get it. I can, yeah. you know, teaching how to do that. Yeah. But it took it took me going into this room with students in the middle of the woods to kind of feel comfortable. Yeah. And then from there, I think I've written I've written a couple things since then. Yeah. Yeah. But it's always 
I've at least told myself I won't say no. If somebody asks me to write something, yeah, I won't say no. And so a couple of my friends have asked me to, to do things or like parlor tapes asked me to do something a couple of years ago. Right. And turns out if you give me a deadline, I will write something. And yep. it's fine. And I think, <laughs> I think I'm, it's, yeah, my music is not as worth, it's no less worthless than a lot of people. <laughs> right. Right. And that's funny is that you always feel like you're on this slippery slope when you talk about composition, like. What I am not saying is everyone's music is going to be equally good. I'm certainly not saying that. I'm certainly not saying that I just showed up at the page and like knocked it out of the park. I did not. But I think there's a lot of, as you say, just stuff in your head that is stopping a lot of people from crossing the threshold of a composition seminar or an or a, a jazz improvisation class or a free free improv, whatever they just don't even want to dip their toe in it. And a lot of that has to do with, with messaging. So I think if we were willing to change the messaging, which would cost some people some prestige um, and cost them some exclusivity, you could see a lot more participation and presumably higher participation would result in better art. Not everyone's art would be better, but there's people would be more informed by going through the act of creating art. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's such a great process. Yeah. Have an idea. Yeah. Communicate an idea. And then actually, and then you wouldn't be an asshole to composers who wrote something, you know, who made a mistake or are trying something out and it didn't quite work. Then you don't quite have the same ability to scoff at them. Right. Which is also, you know, really important. It's like, oh, I've been there. You know, this is a hard thing to do. And, you know, let's work on this together. I mean, that would be my ideal vision of how, you know, performers could engage with, with a score. And then of course, composers have to understand the work that performers do. And well, it's funny. Um, was it in that article that you were talking about your Myers Briggs? I did. Yes. My ENFJ type, you know, I, um, it has occurred to me, working with I've, I've found in the last few years a new sympathy for some composers who I used to wish that all composers understood the collaborative process yeah, as well as we'd hoped. But then I realized that um, sometimes people on the day of choosing what they want to do musically, sometimes composers like to sit in a room alone with their thoughts because interacting with people is hard for them. Yeah. And so I've had, I've learned that sometimes, Oh, right. You're not a performer. You have, you're a, a fine reason. musician, but you, the act of the whole public and the people and the talking to the people, that's, <laughs> that's the hard part for you. So yeah. you like to have very private thoughts. And yeah. It's probably kind of painful to bring your private thoughts yes. across the threshold. It's an act of totally tremendous courage, which sometimes tips toward ego or you almost have to. It's like the act of standing up in front of an orchestra. Truly a tremendously vulnerable thing to do. You know, they could literally mutiny on you um, if they don't like you. And so, yeah, that sometimes tips into, I have to be an asshole to make this work. I have to be aloof, whatever. Understandably so. Or just that anxiety takes over. Yeah, exactly. Fight or flight just kicks in. Yeah, and they just have, (laughs) they don't have the capacity for like. Yeah. All that. Yeah. All that whatever collaborative thing that. Yeah. Some of us thrive on. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's funny because 
I'm so torn about this. I've talked to a few composers about this lately. I mean, when I played Dave Remenick's doctoral recital um, last month or two months ago, when I first started practicing the piece, I was like, how dare he write this hard stuff in the world we live in? Like, how am I supposed to have time to do this? You know, it, like I feel like performers can feel a sense of resentment. Like, literally, how am I supposed to have time to do this? Um, I mean, of course, if you're a full-time performer, that is your job. But many performers are sort of juggling. And they're like, do you have any idea how long it's going to take me to figure out how to do this? I mean, right. you're intimately familiar with this. But then the thing is, the music's really, really awesome. And by the end of the process, I was like, I am really glad that you didn't give a shit if it was hard. You just wrote it and it's great. And it, was, it wasn't that bad. I figured it out. You know, it's like that's the performer right. process from total panic and hating the person who's making you do this to I get it. Thank you. Keep doing it. Oh, we'll figure it out. You know, like it's just it's so it's such an emotional journey. Right. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. You, and composers don't. If they don't write it, we'll never hear what it sounds like. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's tough. I mean, like you've got to be, sometimes you got to be writing that stuff. Like we have a cheap cat. <laughs> we have, we now have a we cat. We need to take a break uh, because my cat is rubbing herself on all the audio equipment. This is a, she's like, this is a rectangle. Hey, it's, a, it's a scratchy These rectangle. These are things. This is great. This is great. <laughs> okay. Well, I, was, I was saying earlier that all of the podcasts so far have been cat people. So yeah, my cat is basically hitting on Doug with epic success that's great yeah we say we uh, my partner and i say that she is a heterosexual cat she <laughs> really really likes men when they come over she just sort of it's throws like, herself little, at them that's a, a little male energy yeah i think the guys too like tend to let her like bite them they're not like they're not like us where we're like stop biting me they're like oh man she's biting me this is kind of cool <laughs> i am so, not one of those men yes our I, relationship will i respect get, that <laughs> we'll get worse in a couple minutes then <laughs> Um, okay. So then, uh, to go to one of your, what do you wish people knew you for? Oh, that's such a good question. I struggle with it too. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad you asked me this because what I wish people knew me for points me toward, of course, the projects and the work that I'm not doing (laughs) that people don't know me for, but they totally could if I would try harder. Um, and so that would be um, probably as a a singer, a songwriter, and kind of a performance creator and collaborator, which I've done a good bit of, you know, but I'm still learning how to do it. And um, that's part of the reason working with Dave was really exciting because he writes for singing instrumentalists, uh-huh. which is sort of like a dream for me. Um, and I've started studying voice formally. So in my dream world... I would be sort of known as kind of a, a composer performer who does like interdisciplinary stuff. Okay. You're good. looking at me like you had no idea that was coming. <laughs> well, no, I did. I mean, I'm <laughs> that I can, that I'm, I'm the world's worst percussion soloist. Like, <laughs> you know, I do, I do like virtually no work at it, but in, in my heart, I start to, I'm starting to think of myself more and more that way. Okay. But, okay. So yeah, yeah. But it's not, it's kind of not. It's not happening at the moment. Well, I have so many other things. And again, it's like, 
I'm not going to shut down all the other things I do to spend the time it takes in my practice room and then trying to explain to people why they really, you know, and then to go through the whole thing of the five years of yeah. working up the bookings. Right, right. That, that I've come to a place where I'm comfortable realizing that there's different people know me for different things. Yeah. And that that's okay. Yep. No, that's really cool. Um, but I think if the fact that you kind of long for people to know you as that. It just feels convenient. I think if I don't, I, longing is to overstate how it feels. Okay. Just in my, in my mind, I envision that as I could make a, I could make a dug tree where things fall from that as the, as the, as the star at the top of the tree. Yeah. But it's so not, it's so much messier than that, which right. is, which is also fine. But it, it was funny, and I've, I noticed this about you. I'm I'm redoing my website mm. for the first time in years, and I took the word percussionist off my website. Mm. I used to be Doug Perkins percussionist. Yeah, but so I, I just said I want to be thought of that way. But I realized that I'm doing so many things that that's actually too limiting to describe who I am. Yep, and, and you, you call yourself an artist. Yeah. An artist, I think the first line in my bio is like an artist whose work crosses classical music, new music, literature, which is theater, which is all true and songwriting. Um, yeah. So people do know you for different things. The, the thing that I, this is also in that book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. <laughs> he sort of bemoans this thing that is going on where someone who has a perfectly successful career as a lawyer loves massages and wants to suddenly become a masseuse or someone who, you know, has a corporate job, wants to become a yoga teacher. And he actually tells the story of a woman who leaves her corporate job to become a yoga teacher and ends up on food stamps. And it's like, yeah, the reason that that didn't work out is because you didn't have the skills to compete and offer something that people want to pay for as a yoga teacher. You had a lot of skills in this other area that you wanted to abandon. And I just, oh, that book was painful to read because there's so many times I've wanted to abandon my strongest skill sets because something shiny is like over here that I want to do. Maybe like being a songwriter, maybe like being a, I don't know. I mean, I have skills there, but it's like, it's as you say, it's do we want to invest the time to get really, really good at that thing? Right. And that's something I'm kind of grappling with right now. And obviously I took the trouble to start studying voice. So I'm kind of serious about getting better at it I don't know I don't know that's going to become like you say the center of my tree that that everything falls from but it certainly energizes everything in my life to be doing it a little bit uh-huh. yeah it energizes everything in my life I mean I walk out of a voice lesson like I'm literally got shot up with some drug of like happiness and energy so you can't argue with that right which is also um <laughs> great that you know you're now entering your mid-career phase and having new discoveries and taking new chances yeah and letting go of other other feelings about yourself yeah because i i think and i something about classical music is kind of a bummer that way and that it puts all of these restrictions on us yeah. For this, the training and the discipline, which are great things. It teaches us to work. You get a lot of great things there, but that it, yeah. you can come out sort of full of fears and putting yourself in a pretty, pretty harsh box Yeah, to have the, you know, and when you can have the courage to say like, 
I want to sing more. I'm going to take some lessons. Yeah. I'm going to get up on stage. I'm going to do it. <laughs> right. Like, and that yeah. feels so great. And that it means does. And even violin less, but <laughs> yeah. that's also fine. What was funny actually about taking the voice lessons is I started taking the voice lessons while I was still working full time and I just desperately needed something to make me feel more alive and more aligned with what I really wanted. And the, I think it's this thing of, of, of tipping back and forth between different things that is so helpful, which is that I would walk out of a voice lesson and be like, okay, so I cannot successfully sing, you know, the eh vowel. I can't wait to play violin because I have been doing that for 20 years and I can do that. Like being a beginner at singing in certain ways allows me to see how much ability I have to express on the violin. So actually my voice lessons reignited my interest in playing the violin because it is easier for me than singing. Um, so it's just interesting. I think that's the benefit of like mixing it up as, as you say, they all inform each other. And I just, I was just out in Oregon last month premiering the show that I helped to write and singing three or four pieces of music on the show. So I was sort of like, it was kind of in the realm of jazz. I was kind of singing jazz and folk with a five piece band. And I was like, okay, that was super awesome. I like really need to be better at this. You know, I need to learn how to take, how to care for my voice and, and everything my teacher had been saying was sort of sticking in my ears. You know, you're going to keep having problems if you don't address X. And by the end of two weeks as a singer, I was like, she's right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, nothing is more motivating than actually trying it and seeing how far you have to come. I mean, I, I did a little career workshop with these kids in Oregon at Oregon state and the area where the most excitement was for them was where interest was extremely high and skill level was lower. Uh-huh. Like that was that was what they were drawn to. And that's what I'm drawn to. Where interest is really high, but skill level is still developing. I mean, for me, those areas just like glow. It's like, how can I, you know, do more of that? If I already know how to do it, it's less thrilling. Right. Um First of all, do you have it? We're we're going into our second hour, but I don't care. Okay, Are yeah. you okay? Yeah, okay, yeah. Good. I mean, do you edit these? Not much. If Not we're, much. If we're particularly, um, I might check for ums, but that's about it. <laughs> or if you okay, s- yeah. end up saying something horribly offensive. Uh, the For me, I've had that same problem in that problem. That wasn't a problem. But like uh, I grew up, I grew up as a drum set player. Mm. I love drum set. It's, it is... It is it is a natural extension of my body playing the mm. drum set. I love it so much. Mm. I'm it's but it's not hard for me. Right. So it, it kind of got boring for me quickly. Yeah. And the the work of the work of the working on it just it just I was like oh I get it. So then I moved on and then I was also really passionate about the timpani. Yeah. But similarly, then I kind of once I got the realization of like oh I see how this goes. I started to lose the interest. <laughs> and the bad news is I suck at the marimba. So like I play it every day. I'm an idiot. I should, you know, like I should, I should regress or move on. But I'm kind of like, I'm sort of in this area of, I think what makes me play complexity and makes me play hard music all the time is that it kind of kills me. Yeah. And the act of, I have yet to have the breakthrough of synthesis to move on. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yep. There's, there's, there's something to that. I mean, there's something really kind of comforting 
and and stable and also this is what allows you often to have a career is if you do have something that's kind of easy for you and you can be a professional you can show up you can do it reliably yeah I mean it sounds like but then sometimes you end up doing things professionally that aren't in that comfort zone for you it sounds like that's what you're saying yeah, I find that. I or find at least that more not the comfort you arrived at with drum set and, and timpani. Some people would say, oh, yeah, Doug has comfort. But you know. I have comfort, but it's not the same. You know what that um, right. mountaintop is for you. Right. And you know that it's not the same. And that's totally how I feel about singing. Um, yeah, it, it's not as reliably, you know, pro and, and comfortable and and um, don't have that facility. Yet it seems to contain so much expressive potential and it's a deep pool and you can so much growth can happen right it's interesting well um like tim feeney again who i had on the podcast if you see him at a concert now he's mostly just playing long tones for a half hour wow because he he's he's also the most virtuosic performer i've ever met and played with he can do anything Mm. so he's he's kind of a post-virtuosic performer and that I think he feels about the things that I'm still trying to figure out are the things that he has so deeply inside of him. And he worked really hard and, you know, I think probably burned himself out of it getting to that place. But he yeah. got to a place that now I think he's just looking for good sounds. So I, I look forward to the day. <laughs> I can just look for you good can sounds. also do that. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And that it involves a whole other kind of risk. Um, and he has that right. I mean, that's, that's the hard thing. Um, sometimes you step away from your moneymaker in a way, you know, you step away from your calling card, you step away from that thing that, that you became known for. And it's sort of like a a pop band, not doing their songs, you know, not doing their hits anymore. There's a sense of loss, but like for Tim, it's like, that is his right. That is his prerogative to play long tones. And some people might walk away scratching their heads. I don't know what people walk away with, but he has to do that. Like that's the next it's, step for it's him. Great, and he's so happy and it's wonderful. And he's, yeah. and what's cool is he's bringing people, he's bringing people to this other way of listening. And so he's doing really great. He's doing great work with it. But I remember when he kind of stepped away, I was, I was kind of like, what are you doing? You have so much. In right. But it's, I, it's I I love watching his growth. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can I? Okay. Sorry. There's so many things. Go for it. Um, oh my god. Yeah. I, so then, I can't see the whiteboard, so I don't know where. Oh you're no, going I'm next. not even. I'm post. Oh, I'm not whiteboard. You're post whiteboard. I think. Well, I'm not post whiteboard. I think. I think I have. Might have a couple more whiteboard questions. Okay. <laughs> no. No pressure. Um, but uh, you mentioned doing a career seminar, mm-hmm. which you have. I guess part of your life is. Do you consider yourself a consultant? Or I would you- say coaching and consulting. It's often a mix of both that um, I'm now doing. So how did you how did you get to the moment of what's interesting? Uh, I mean, I think I, I think I, I feel like I get it, but it's an interesting thing worth talking about is that. Yeah. To talk to you for this last hour is to talk to somebody searching who's like, I don't have it figured out at all yet. I will coach you <laughs> and I will make you better <laughs> at it. <laughs> right. So how, yeah. How did you come? How? How how do you feel about that? It was very scary. And wh- how did you start doing it? Um, I have thought for a super long time that I want to work with people one-on-one and help them achieve their potential. Like, that's something I love to do. I love to teach. Um, 
but teaching the violin exclusively um, kind of felt too narrow and repetitive. I am like totally a big picture person. I really want to kind of like look at the whole scope of your life, see what's up. Kind of, I love getting to know people. I love seeing what makes them tick. So I've sensed for a long time that I could be a good person who, if you were like, you know, I really want to do, like, I have a new recording project and I kind of want someone to sit alongside me, help me conceptualize this, help me project manage. It's sort of a combination of things. And I've found the people that I've worked with, um, they have some things in common, but everyone needs something different in terms of a teammate. The tough thing is that like, you're often doing this stuff alone and you could really use someone to bounce things off of and keep you accountable. Who's not like your wife, um, or your husband or whatever. So there's kind of a need there. Um, but it was so scary for me to claim, yes, I can help you and you're, you're going to pay me for it. Um, as it turns out, I think I'm actually good at it. And I think the thing about me being like a searcher and a seeker who doesn't have it figured out is the thing that helps me help people. Cause I've put a lot of time into thinking about life and our choices and what makes us happy. And, um, I've just spent a lot of time grappling with it. I read, I now read even more widely, you know, for my clients. If I, if I find there's someone who's grappling with a particular thing, Uh I will sort of go out and research for them until I can kind of arrive at something for them. So it's just so, so fun for me, but I think it's always scary to claim a place of like, yeah, I can help you. Um, I think that's a big step to take. Um, but I, I'm really, really liking it. And it's the my biggest hesitation is like, is it really enough for me to help artists? Like it's you're sort of staying in this small pool and I'm just taking money away from my fellow artists. But it's again, I'm kind of accepting that, you know, small things with great love. Like, let me just help and talk to the people that are right here um, who who want to get better and want to do something big and aren't afraid to kind of reach out. So it's, it's been really awesome. Yeah. I guess it is nice to have, as you say, just uh, to be able to be there for somebody as that uh, support system. Cause I know from, from myself, that's take, it's taken years. The best thing about like being in a group is that you have other people to be accountable to or to commiserate with, you know, um, on uh on the bad days you know when with um speaking of the so days i describe the bad days as coming to work with your best friends being completely happy getting in a room to rehearse and for percussionists we'd move furniture with the gear (laughs) and then nitpick your friends for a while yeah (laughs) tell them they're too fast or too loud or too soft eat lunch and then talk about money all day which is a way to really kind of lose the energy with your friends but on the best days you're in there with your best friends and when you have a bad day, there's somebody to, to help you through that or to recognize it or to share the bad day with or to share the good days with or that you know that you can't show up at work the next day having not done that thing or else everyone will be avoiding eye contact with you for the whole day. So it helps you get things done. Whereas right now when I'm, I'm working, I'm alone in a vacuum and how do you, and I, and I think for myself, I haven't hired consultants, but I definitely try to put myself, I've learned that I try to put myself, I try to make myself accountable to people or I try to make touch points in every day 
or I have to have these moments to make sure that things keep going so that I don't just yeah. devolve into staring at my whiteboard and refreshing <laughs> social media. Yeah. I mean, the ensemble thing is such an incredible, if it's working really well, such an incredible kind of synergy and that accountability and all that you can achieve together that you couldn't achieve alone. Um, and it's, and one of you can go to the post office while the other one looks something up. <laughs> right. It's just like, <laughs> makes sense. Um, and so some of the people, some of my clients are more people who work alone, like soloists or composers. But actually, sometimes it is an ensemble who's like, there's just something that none of us ever learned to do. And you know how to do it. So sometimes it's just about sharing knowledge. And then that team can continue to flourish and thrive and do division of labor the way they do. They just have a gap. Right. And like they don't know how to, you know, work with the press. Like they've just never seen it. They need to see it. And then once they see it, they're going to be fine. Right. So some of it's more project based and skill based and just it's teaching, you know. Um, and do you actively advertise and seek that stuff or do you, you just put so far? Out there? I haven't. Um, and right now I only see three clients at a time. So I'll only have three people that I'm working with at a time and I'm full for the month of April. Um, I might have some openings in May, but we'll see. I mean, that's also because I still want to play. I still want to do other things. There might come a time that I'm working with more than three people, but, um, and then all of your playing stuff, what are your, what yeah. are you working on now? The biggest thing I'm working on is I want to build a solo recital. So I have a couple of commissions, um, that I have in mind who's, who are not totally fixed yet. I just ordered, um, Lisa Bialawa's Kafka songs, which are for singing violinist Carla Kilstedt premiered them and they're really great. I have to see if I could perform them. So yeah, I'm, I'm right now in a phase of trying not to take too many gigs so that I have time to practice and build my own shtick, <laughs> my own that's thing. Great. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, but actually the next thing I have coming up, I think is that Sam Scranton and I are going to do a duo of our we kind of are able to compose collaboratively um ish and that's on on may 1st we're gonna do some songs with percussion and violin at the green green mill is that the thing you already have done no it's gonna be something new it's gonna be something new sam and i and it's funny because i talked to you about that on the uh relevant tones right and i said sam made me put my violin on a table right it was really traumatic and you said this is going to be a big thing for you. And you were totally right. (laughs) (laughs) Me and Sam, basically we kind of built an instrument, which is comprised of tabletop violin and a bunch of other percussion. It's kind of like a little tiny gamelan. We both sit, sit there and do different things. Um, And I like miss those instruments. It's really like a different instrument. And so I think what we do at the green mill will build on the instrument that we kind of created together, but it'll be different musical material. I'm so bummed. I've still not seen you. I've one of my great, there's so much good music in Chicago and I'm here yeah. so rarely. Yeah. When I'm home, I'm probably watching cartoons with my son. As you should be. I know. But no I FOMO. <laughs> I know. but I have, It's okay. I have some, at least know that you've created some for me. Oh, that's when I good. See you, I'm like, ah, no. And Sam, Sam and my collaboration is super. I mean, he's just someone who has emerged as being really important for me in a way because we both approach spirituality in this wildly different way. Like I'm sort of a semi 
confirmed like legitimate Buddhist slash spiritual person. And Sam is too, but I think he's often deeply skeptical. And so together we kind of have this interesting dialogue. So a lot of our, I think a lot, our first piece was very much concerned with sort of ritual and, and big questions of earth and otherworldliness. And I think that's just such a, a fun territory for us to explore. So all percussion music is bad ritual or non-denominational ritual. I feel like <laughs> it totally I feel like, can be. It's true. I feel like um, Martin Bresnik, the composer, I feel like when I was in school, he was talking about that because yeah. we can't, you know, the act of lifting anything, there's going to be lifting. There's going to be deliberate movement and placing of things. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it all sort of ends up if it's going well. And maybe that's why I like so many percussionists. Like sometimes I make a list of like who could be in my band if I had a band and it's like four percussionists mm-hmm. and like some other things. I'm like, this isn't going to work. So <laughs> I vote, I think I'm really drawn to, there's also just the experimentation with sound and the fact that right. anything can be an instrument that's incredibly appealing for so many, you know, composers and, um, so that's coming up. That's coming up on May 1st. So we have to kind of create the piece. And we work through a process of improvisation often. Um, and then things become more fixed. So um, so I'm looking forward to that. But in my solo recital, I'm like really trying to only play stuff I absolutely love because I envision myself trying to do it a lot. Well, that's great. Yeah. I, Any it, recommendations? <laughs> uh, no. But I'm psyched, that, I'm psyched that you're... Um, of course, you're a Carla Kilstead fan. Yeah. She's awesome. Yeah, she's so awesome. I, I don't know if I, I would I, like doing that piece, but I certainly love her as a performer and right. a composer, too. Yeah. Yeah. If the if the worst thing you did was make Chicago's version of Tin Hat, then that's fine. That would be really fun, actually. I'd come. I know. They're so cool. <laughs> they're very cool. So. Um, yeah, that's great. Well, I can tell you, may you stay as... Um, Uh, concerned about keeping time for pursuing the projects because I know I'm I'm just I think that's also why I'm a horrible horrible soloist and that I just I'm always <laughs> saying yes to things people are like you want to do you want to do and then oh okay maybe in I think I think in the last four years I keep being like okay I'm gonna this is gonna be the next four months are gonna be when I start to and then I yeah. agree to some project that's a, like a multi-year project and then mm-hmm. you know it's like I time know. flies and yeah well, so that could be. Staying. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, for you, that could be just how it should be, maybe. or or maybe you know. Well, again, event- I keep putting myself in the situation, so maybe that's what I want. <laughs> right, right. But for me, it's funny the um the idea of the uh, meditation retreat is an interesting one to keep in your back pocket. I mean, of course, you know about the existence of practice retreats. You probably did them a lot in your career, but well, I was I was looking yeah. at your the rest of your your five days. There's a lot of you have uh, discussions about meditation, yeah, and um, I talk consulting to... books and um, <laughs> yes. yeah. So it seems like uh, well, I don't know if that I guess it could be tied. Well, it could be tied to your spirituality. This whole oh yeah, yeah. It's it's really about like what you can't do when you're on the super fast turnover hamster wheel of gigs and notes is you cannot really commune with pieces and art. At least it doesn't feel like you are. It sometimes feels like you're cramming and then you get those moments of transcendence on stage or in the rehearsal space and they're super awesome to be constantly communing is probably 
completely impractical. But that's kind of like what I'm going for here is to be able to devote myself to something. And in order to devote yourself to something, you would have to say no to so much stuff. And I don't even know if I'm going to be able to do it. (laughs) First of all, can I afford it? Second of all, can my ego afford it? Will my ego tolerate it? For me to be like, nope, nope, nope. I have to learn X, Y, Z weird piece. Um, but the idea of a meditation retreat in which you put your cell phone in an envelope and hand it to the person at the office and you'll get it back in 10 days and then you don't speak for 10 days and you just commit yourself to the practice is so glorious. And I wish it's sort of, you know, I guess when people go to Banff and practice or composers do, you know, residencies at Copeland House and Uh you enter a space where that's what it's for. I feel like that would be really good for me for this recital project to be like now, now is the time and special bells are ringing and special. I'm in a special place. When you're not talking for 10 days, what are you doing? Meditating. (laughs) Yeah. Like, are you, yeah, this is that insight. Are you, are you reading? Are you just, no, they, well, they recommend no reading and no writing. Some people very well may read and write. You're just existing. It's an experience that I highly recommend and I'm going again in August. So I've managed to set aside time for something like that because um, because the space exists. There's like a a center that says, here's the dates of the retreat. Would you like to come pay your $150 deposit and then you're committed? We need something similar for ourselves. Like for those, it's like the Stephen Covey thing. It's important, but not urgent. It's the urgent things that keep arising until the thing that is totally non-urgent yet deeply important is getting neglected. And so that's the hardest thing is to set aside time for that. How does time shift during those 10 days? (laughs) It sometimes passes extraordinarily slowly (laughs) as you can imagine. Are you doing work? Are you like cooking or anything? Yeah, sure. Yeah. This is at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. It's like one of the oldest retreat centers in the U.S. Um, Might even be the oldest. Um, At least one run by Westerners. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. You have a work period every day. So like last retreat, I cleaned a bathroom for like one hour a day um, and I might take a walk. Um, and some, some the teachers will give instructions. So they might talk about a topic. You might hear them talk for an hour in the evening. Um, but you're kind of just going back and forth between sitting and walking meditation. And the walking meditation is there to relieve your body of sitting still um for so long and you might do some yoga it's pretty crazy doug's looking at me like i'm just so fascinated what (laughs) i highly recommend it i highly highly recommend it and sometimes there are people there who have never meditated before and that's how they choose to start which i think is actually really fascinating and some retreats are actually dedicated to newcomers like mm-hmm. if you've never sat one before this is sort of a good a good one to come sit um I, I i go to the place my um i think my wife and i were drawn to each other by being we're both doers mm-hmm. so i kind of want to i want i want well i would like to go but i would also like her to go yeah. but i kind of feel like she would turn to dust by day. <laughs> you know like i'm not sure what not, i can't i either she'll come back the most enlightened human ever or like or 
I, I just, I would, I would, it would be fascinating, right? It would be, it would be fascinated because that's the, the funny thing. And the scary thing is when you enter an experience like that, you literally do not know. And she also doesn't know what would happen. And I don't know what I'll feel in August. It's completely unpredictable. Um, and it's, it's actually really funny because as I was telling you last winter, I was quite depressed and that was right after my second retreat ever. Okay. It was almost like hard to come back. And it kind of like messed me up a little bit. Um, and now I'm feeling a lot stronger. You know, even I think even when I went on that retreat in the winter, I wasn't doing so hot. So you you come face to face with a lot of shit. And sometimes that's not so pretty. I mean, most people don't want to do something like this because they kind of don't want to know what is in there. <laughs> Right. Right. It's and, and it's also just very scary. But the teaching is awesome. People are there for you. If you need to talk to someone, you can. It's not punitive. Yeah. You know, no one's hitting you with a stick and, and punishing you. It's very, very warm and and um, and welcoming. But at the same time, a difficult thing to undertake. So I'm super I my partner, Susan, really doesn't have much interest in doing a retreat. Oh, uh-huh. Especially one together, because she's just like, I would just want to talk to you. Yeah, I feel like that, that would, would be, be a bad would be idea. Bad. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So you almost would need to go to separate ones. Now I'm now I want to like have you and your wife go. And like, <laughs> I know. Then I'll do a podcast interview with right. you. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It would, you know, the sad, I mean, it's such a sad thing, like finding, and again, where God bless the life of, to come, to come back around, God bless the life of, um, our our lives as performers that we can be in control of yes and that well i'm thinking about my wife 10 days off for a doctor is that's yeah that's a huge investment whereas if if things are going well for us finding finding 10 days to to pop off the grid for a minute it's possible i remember yeah i remember i have so i have this on meditation retreat, you might have the opportunity to talk to one of the teachers for 10 minutes. And that will be kind of one of the times you speak over the course of the time. And I remember talking to one of my teachers and saying, she was like, yeah, you know, what you do is good for spiritual life because it's, that's one of the pros. <laughs> it's definitely one of the pros. And that's why you didn't stay at the Hartford Symphony. Right. Because you wanted to be able to knock off and make an intuitive choice about spending your time. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, it kind of is an intuitive choice. You know, I think I need this right now. Let me do it. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I needed money and luckily there was, you know, my group was taking off. So I yeah. had, yeah, I had, you couldn't afford to be in Hartford anymore. You needed to right. work for, so yeah. And yeah. So that was also, it's not not so relevant to the meditation conversation, but no. I, one of the uh, another funny thing about that and the people thinking of you for different things. Yeah, I remember being at my desk when we got our first New York Times review. I was and I was like really excited about it. Yeah, and I remember trying to tell somebody in the office, and they were kind of like, "Oh man, that's awesome. Do you have that report?" <laughs> I was like, "Oh god, oh yeah, right." Because yeah. you don't. I'm the guy who brings you the things. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's that's in conflict with my feeling about myself. Yep. And so listening listening to those moments in my life have also been telling. And that, yeah. um, 
you know, when, when we stop talking, I will go, actually, I'm going to go look at a piano because I'm going to try to produce a record with a pianist and <gasps> I feel like producers need to know about the piano. So I'm going to go study it. <laughs> That's great. Touch the piano and ask important questions. Yeah. And then I'm going to go home and send emails and do essentially admin work for the rest of the day. Right. On, running my festival and doing some John Luther Adams stuff in a few months. Yeah. But it's fine. It's great. Yeah. Like I will be away from the instruments today, (laughs) but, but, and I'm happy to be again, administering on behalf of those things because like sending emails for chosen veil is to create, I'm working on the structure to empower 40 young students to, come to their retreat to hopefully come away energized too oh and that's just i'm i'm trying to light sparks and sometimes yeah. lighting sparks needs sometimes there's email front work yeah oh yeah and when people hear the monteverdi vespers this weekend and are completely transported by the choir and these beautiful churches and the sack butts and the period instruments and the fiorbo they do not know like some i have my one colleague um, who is our finance and administration director is just like runs such a good ship. Like they won't see it, but it couldn't have happened without that. So, or without your carefully chosen words, <laughs> my little, my Facebook posts <laughs> or without that graphic, my, having my it e-blasts, just, <laughs> just moving that one thing. Yeah. So like, that's such a poignant right. moment that you bring up where like you got a New York times review, but you were also still a 20 something kid with a job that you economically needed to have. Um, and everybody is so much more than their job. Right. But it's, it's extra crazy when you get a recognition like that. And then you look around at your surroundings and that must happen all the time to people. Like you win a MacArthur and then you go change your kid's diaper. Yeah. You know, it's like, what? But I've come to find that also like super liberating. Yeah. And that, you know, not to not to get all touchy feely about parenting, but most of for a good chunk of my life, I'm Jake's dad, and so no one cares. <laughs> like, no one cares what I do. I'm just the dude bringing him to the play date or picking him up from school, or and that's great. And even and he certainly doesn't care. <laughs> like Jake is super. He likes he likes coming to concerts if there's like snacks backstage. But otherwise, like like that's you know, he's not particularly impressed by my snare drum roll. And that's and that's great. And that's you find like, that liberating. Yeah, because it reminds me like who cares? Yeah, I care, and that's great. And some people care, and some people care enough to like want me to do it yeah give you money. money hire you sure right and right but but also at the end of the day that like yeah. it's my access to making a turkey sandwich and turning on the teen titans <laughs> at home that's really my best work i've done today <laughs> like, and that's fine that's like that's it's really it's great and to be able super to super like, good and I, I used to think about it it was particularly stark when i lived in rural new hampshire hmm. in that there was no art to be made. So I would feel like I would take my, my cape off, like my, my <laughs> super dug cape when I'd hit town. And then I'd just go into being like a dad for the days I was home. Yeah. Um, it's more integrated now, which is better for my well-being. But 
Right. But yeah, that, that can be hard if you feel split in a way. It doesn't sound like you feel split. It just that you've integrated that humility of being a dad. Well, and it's like to give it a rest at the end of the day. Like yeah. I'm not, I'm not getting all fired up about who said what or wrote what or this piece stinks or I, you know, like, <laughs> it, like it goes away. Yeah. And also like there's a school pickup that I have to hit. I have to make, I have to be concise in my artistic thought creations because yeah I gotta turn it off yeah that's so awesome I mean definitely like obviously I'm not a parent but I want to be and so I love hearing about that stuff because I've always sensed I've also always sensed that um the the prospect of parenting for me has a lot to do with that adventure yeah and and sort of and has so, so much to do with relationships but kind of that risk of failure like you are a new person every day when you wake up and like, I'm going to take care of you and, and know you. And like, you're on a totally, you're on a totally mundane, but like really thrilling adventure. It's great. Yeah. And it does, you know, on the, on the bad FOMO days that, uh, I'm aware of, if I just had those other hours, yeah, I could just, I could do so much more professionally. Yep. Yeah, you could. But then I can like I've done I do okay I do good, so it's <laughs> like it's fine. And then to yeah. have all of that, but to have a have, but it's also I think it's helped my relationships. And I think you're I can I feel like you're working on it or that in your list you yeah you, I see dinner plans I see uh, you made time for entertainment you made time yep. for your partner you made time for a friend, and to be good at making time for people. Yeah. Like having uh, Jake has helped me with that, that yeah. he, he is a, if I get on my computer or I go into my studio, unless there are times if I have deadlines, I'll say, Hey buddy, I got to like really, but if I find myself getting distracted into my electronics or something, I'll just start hearing dad, dad, Hey dad. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Well, my mom always used to say that cause I was, my parents were both classical singers. They had three kids by the time they were 30. So they always did other things for money, but I just remember my mom saying like kids all they want is like their parents time. Like if you're giving your kid some of your time, it's like they're, they're so good, you know? And there's a lot of stuff we didn't have, you know, money wise, but like it was so, so, so rich in terms of my parents having time for me and me getting to know them. And I just, so that's so awesome. Yeah. And it's, but it's, it's a, is a practice and i know like well and even as as you you feel in your relationship like yeah my wife and i have to do the same thing of yeah because if we sometimes i feel like my wife and i could if we didn't have children we could happily work a lot and like go on some dates on the weekend and be like yeah have a good week yeah it was great i got you know yep but to like making the time to it's it's like practicing or like running or yeah. all of that is like we're all gonna shut down and we're all gonna hang out for a while <laughs> even if we do so nothing awesome. it's like but it's but it is it's a practice yeah one of the self-help books that i consulted this week is that classic stephen covey um the seven habits of highly effective people have you read that i feel like i feel like i glanced at it it's My, so sort of like dated in certain ways but it's like Dale Carnegie, you know, right. It's just a classic. And he actually like, it's super cute in the book. He's like, I want you to sit in a quiet place and I want you to imagine your funeral. (laughs) (laughs) 
and then it's like what there's gonna be there's gonna oh, be oh yeah i have i i have read it that would be a very memorable part of the book and he's yeah. like there are four people who are gonna talk someone you know your your spouse your child your co-worker and like a friend and literally i want you to sit down and write down like what you hope they're gonna say and I was like, wow, this is some real stuff. And I did it. And I like the first thing that I wrote down was like, I was present for your life. And for any friend, any relationship, like yeah, she was oh, there. I feel like an asshole. I feel, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'm already like, ugh, I got to call my friend when I'm on the way home. I know. Well, you can't ever possibly like be perfect and keep up with everything but like just that you hold that intention would change right. the way you did everything yeah you would call a friend a little more often probably yeah I, yeah i was just it's not about being perfect i know i know and when well, someone it's like dies you're always, you're always well like oh. yeah it's 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 um it's just it's occurred to me well not, you know the good news is i have friends when you're a performer you have friends all over the place and then, so at any one time, I am seeing one friend more than another friend. Yeah, you're present for different of, people. But I have a list of friends who I'm like, ugh. I know. I have to make some special time for you. Yeah. Nobody needs you to be Superman. I just thought that was such an interesting. Yeah. You can't be everywhere at once. And that's kind of painful. I mean, that's FOMO again. It's like, well. Totally. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was a great exercise. So I've, I'm, I'm bearing that in mind. And um, for sure, you won't probably say, I wish I sent more emails or i wish yeah, totally. we did another jla thing or whatever you you will probably feel good about that part yeah i got that covered yeah <laughs> yeah and uh, this is why i wrote like mortality on the board because i've just oh, been there is mortality, I've, yeah. i wrote mortality because i it's just been a big topic for me like i lost my mom she was like she was my mom she was one of my best friends and for a while it made me so i was like okay, so life is short and you might drop dead when you're 50. So you need to like, you know, it was like kind of freaking me out, making me speed up. Right. And now I feel like I've integrated a little more and it actually makes me slow down. Um, Cause you do sometimes feel that sense of urgency. Like I don't know how much time I have, so I need to what? Right. And what is the balance? Yeah. Yeah. So it messed with me for a long time and I think it kind of overwhelmed my brain. Like, how do I integrate the fact that you could not live as long as you thought you would? Um, and now I'm like, oh, what you do is you just live from your truest intentions and you just do your best. I mean, right. <laughs> so it's arrived back at a very simple place, but for a while it was um, shaping me in almost kind of a violent way, which I think a big life event like that can can do. Yeah, I've yeah. this year my dad's been sick. Mm. He's he's doing well now. Oh, good. He's doing well. He, yeah. Um, but he going through any of so I'm well, I'm lucky that he's he's around. But yeah, you know, but like dealing with the feeling of like, well, one visiting a sick parent. Yeah. How long? I, you know, I felt like do I shut down my life and just sit next to you? No, that's going to annoy everyone. <laughs> I probably need to live my life. <laughs> now I'm living my life. Do I need? Ah, I kind of wish I was there. Right. Yep. I want to be there. I want to, you just don't, there's no, there's no, there's no right answer. Yeah. There's no manual for that stuff. But it's yeah. It's tough. It sucks. Yeah. It sucks really bad. Yep. It doesn't suck. And I'm happy he's great and we talk all the time. And yeah. Like, but if, it's a, it's like a, it, it's a waking up experience that it's, but it's not this easy like equation of like, you have had hard experiences, therefore you are stronger and better now. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it fucks you up. Right. 
and then maybe later you'll feel better. Right. Maybe. You know, I mean, for me, for me, I'm like, now I can say I, I do, I do feel better. But for a really long time, I was like, I might never feel normal. Um, so I don't know. I, 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 I like putting that out there because I think it's, it's good for people to hear, but it doesn't mean like once you feel better, like you don't need to stay sad. It's not some kind of badge, you know, that's the other thing is I'm like, if I'm doing well, like that's great. I paid my dues of sadness. Now let's like have fun. You know, that's, that's, that's a good turn to take too. Yeah. As always, I have become the Grim Reaper. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, I, that's not the Grim Reaper at all. It's yeah. just, yeah, I think, you know, what do you say? You just, you wake up the next day and hope it's a better day. Yeah, exactly. And, clarity oh, or... and you're so, you know, happy to have that day. I remember I talked to a guy who I think what he did is he made wallpaper, beautiful wallpaper, high end. It's, he was like the person who hand did it probably. And uh, I was talking to him about all my like angsty, like gig issues. I met him at some reception and he was like, oh man, like you just get up, you wake up every day, like thank God you're alive. And then you just go do it. That was like my quote from the wallpaper guy. I was like, that's awesome. So yeah, it's if you're in a if you're in a place of health where you can do that, it's just the best. Right. Yeah. And if you're in a place of not having enough gigs, you just get up and do it. <laughs> and maybe the gigs will come. <laughs> you can apply to everything. Just apply to everything. <laughs> maybe you get a job so you can pay your rent. Oh yeah. man. It's always hard to end these things. I think it's fine. I think we did good. I think we made some wrap up. We did it. Do you yeah. I can't remember, do you tag on an ending? I don't tag endings. Yeah, you don't. You don't. I contextualize like, at the beginning for yeah, you can ta- two right. minutes or less. Right, right. Well, feel free to. Let's do it. Let's call it. Well, thank you so much. This has been really great. It is my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. <laughs> it makes me feel really good that you wanted to talk to me. I admire your work a lot and um i think you're doing great stuff so i'm excited to see how your therapy slash podcast right you know how it keeps developing for you yeah so far so good and it's fun to have great conversations every couple weeks yep so fun okay bye bye